I can sum it up in three words for you, Chuck. Post health matters. What we see is that our terrain, the soil in which disease develops, and we're really talking about our microbiome, our immune system, etc. That soil is really critical to outcome. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in Rockport, Texas, Olympia, Washington, and Tainan City, Taiwan. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 82 of season 5, number 381 overall. Today's question is this. Why is it that some people get sick over and over and over again, and there are others who are exposed to the same virus that never get so much as the sniffles? My guest today says the answer to that question is far from random. And there are a lot of ingredients in the secret sauce that we call immunity, but one of the main ones appears to be a healthy gut. And that is what Dr. Robin Chutkin will be talking about with us here today on the show. She joined me recently on the exam room live. And Dr. Chutkin is one of the most recognizable gastroenterologists in the United States. She also happens to be the author of the new book, The Antiviral Gut. So she is here to solve the immunity mystery for us and answer questions that the exam roomies sent in to us on the exam room live for the doctor's mailbag. Also today, we will be talking about a couple of other new studies that are making the rounds, ones that link popular acid blocking medication to cancer and even triggering asthma and allergies in children. So stay tuned for that. Plus, I'll have details on another new study showing that a vitamin that is created by the sun might just be your ticket to a few more trips around that same sun. That story a little bit later on when we visit the exam room news desk. But first, a five-star health success. So this is something that we've been doing recently here on the show, a new idea where you share your own health success with us by leaving a five-star rating and a nice review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you listen to the show. You leave your own health journey and we would love to share it with the world. So whether you've lost some weight, brought that scale, get it moving in the right direction, or maybe you're out of pain for the first time in years and you're able to go out for a walk or get down on the floor and play around with the grandkids. Maybe you've got your diabetes now under control, your high cholesterol is coming down, your high blood pressure coming down. Whatever your health success, we would love to know how your life has improved by changing your diet. So hop on Apple Podcast or wherever you get your shows, leave that five-star rating and your own success with us. Today's comes from Lackery on Apple Podcast, who writes, I was already dairy-free and gluten-free for years and mostly plant-based, but then I tried the 15-day challenge I heard Dr. Will Bolsowitz talking about with Chuck, and now I've been eating plant-based for two months and I feel insanely amazing. Ditching chicken and oil and ramping up veggies has been fantastic. I cannot thank you enough for this awesome show. 
That is so great to hear. You're feeling insanely amazing. I know that feeling and you can just conquer the world and you want to share it with the world so everybody else can feel that good as well. That's the purpose of the show to inspire and to educate. And my friend, you have me all fired up here today. So thank you very much for that great post. And if you would like to share your own five-star health success with us, go ahead, do that right now. Again, hop on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leave that five-star rating. And then in that text box where you can leave a review, just share your story with us. And maybe we'll feature that right here on the show. But for now, let's go ahead and turn to your gut. Let's turn it into an antiviral gut. Dr. Robin Chuckin is making a house call on the exam room. Thank you so very much for joining the show once again. Great to see you. Chuck, thank you so much for having me. It's always such a pleasure to be on chatting with you. Congratulations on the release of your latest book. This is Thank a you. must we're read. It twinning. comes out. Twinning with the books here. <laughs> yeah, I know. The dual book. We're twinsing. We're twinsing as the kids I would say. I have to tell you, I, I love the color. You know, Penguin Random House. I said, okay, only criteria I have is I don't want my face on it. My face has been on two. I like to do something different. And they came up with this design, the first stab at it. And I have to say, I really love it. I think it's really clean. The, um, you know, the little lines remind me of the intestines. So really love the design. Uh, you, did they even, they don't have your face. Oh, it's on the uh, inside yeah, wear yeah. jacket. Okay. On the inside. There you go. There you go. Don't hide the face. It, it's like, it's such a smart face. It's a beautiful face. It's the face of health confidence. So don't hide it. Don't hide it. I'm glad that you're here today. Um, but I love your book. I had the opportunity to uh, flip through it as soon as I got back from Denver this past week. And when I got home, there it was waiting for me on my doorstep. And I start flipping through it. And right uh, out of the gate, you start talking about this cruise ship a couple of years ago, Diamond Princess, I think, where there was this massive COVID outbreak. And there, you know, we saw some people on board get just like super violently ill. I believe a few people may have even died. Others who were exposed to the virus, and I would think it'd be next to impossible not to be given those types of quarters, uh, mild symptoms or none at all. So what separates those who are getting extremely sick versus those who have also been exposed? And like I said at the top, aren't getting so much as a sniffle. I can sum it up in three words for you, Chuck. Host health matters. Host health matters. So while the virulence of the pathogen matters too, right? The more virulent the pathogen and the more infectious the pathogen, the more likely we are to get sick. But the health of the host, and Chuck, when you think about it, this isn't true just for viral illnesses. This is true for heart disease, for cancer, for all kinds of things. If you are an 85-year-old and you have obesity and you're sedentary and you're a smoker and you're in poor health and you get a, have a heart attack, you're not going to do as well as the 25-year-old, you know, ultra runner who eats a really healthy plant-based diet. So what we see is that our terrain, the soil in which disease develops, and we're really talking about our microbiome, our immune system, et cetera, that soil is really critical to outcome. And we've seen it with COVID, you know, we can predictably look and see who is likely to end up on a ventilator, who is likely to end up in the ICU, who is likely to, you know, tragically die from this virus versus who is likely to end up, you know, having a mild infection. And we can similarly also make some predictions about long COVID. So we know that the host 
health matters, what your terrain looks like. And that really, you know, that's my public service message with this book is that we can be healthier hosts. We really probably cannot elude viruses like this. We know from a 2021 study at Duke University that the likelihood of pandemics like this happening was about 2% per year. So if you think about that, Chuck, if you're born in 2020, that means it was really over a 40% likelihood of something like this happening. And we know that these pandemics are happening more frequently than we expect. So exposure to some extent is inevitable, but illness is not inevitable. There are, there are factors that we can do to make ourselves more resilient, less susceptible to help ensure that we have a better outcome. Yeah, let's talk about some of those factors. First, I want to say hi, though, to uh, Liz, who is watching today in Austin, Texas, joining us live. Uh, we also have uh, Anton joining us, and we have Natalie, who's up late. Well, late-ish. Uh, good evening from Germany. So, uh, Natalie, thanks for eating your dinner with the exam room live. That's awesome. I love the worldwide effect here, especially because we're talking about something that is definitely having a global impact right now. There's not a single square foot on the face of the earth where immunity does not come into play. Uh, but Dr. Chuck, in the name of the book is the antiviral gut. And so I got to ask you, how much of our immune system is really housed in the gut? It's a great question, Chuck. And it turns, about, it turns out about 70 to 80% of our immune system is physically located along the lining of the gut there. And on the other side of the gut lining, of course, we have the trillions of microbes, the bacteria, the viruses, the fungal organisms, the protozoa, et cetera. And there is constant communication between those two sides. So you can think of the microbiome as air traffic control, essentially, that's guiding that immune response. And so you start to see, when you think about the physical location, and Chuck, they're separated only by a one, a one cell thick barrier, that intestinal lining, what we call the epithelial barrier. So when you imagine that, you know, the physical space of this tiny razor sharp, razor thin rather lining with the immune cells on one side and the microbes on the other, you can start to see how if the microbiome is disrupted, it's going to lead to problems with the immune processes. And one of the examples I love that I think really kind of, you know, illustrates this is there is a bacteria, a very common bacteria in the gut called Bacteroides fragilis. We call it BFRAG for short. We're on a first name basis. <laughs> and um, BFRAG is one of those common gut organisms that is sort of doing surveillance for viruses when it detects a harmful virus. And remember, we're talking about a morass of trillions of organisms floating along there in the gut lumen. So when it senses a harmful virus, it literally kicks the lining of the intestinal barrier to release something called interferons. And interferons are so-called because they interfere with viruses. And then that sets off a whole immune cascade against the viruses. So the BFRAG are like the lookouts to say, hey, something worrisome is coming. We need to trigger an immune response. And what we see, Chuck, is that if we look worldwide, people who grew up in super clean environments in a sort of super sanitized environment, like many people do in North America and Western Europe, et cetera, their immune system doesn't get that training and it can lead to autoimmune diseases down the road where the immune system overreacts when it's exposed to relatively harmless pathogens. And so we see that a certain amount of exposure to these pathogens is actually necessary for a well-functioning immune system. And that is part of the basis of what we call the hygiene hypothesis that suggests that we need exposure, some exposure 
to some germs as we're growing up to train our immune system, when to react, when to ignore, when to mount a little response versus a big, huge response. All right. So what is the balance there? That's an interesting conversation, right? I mean, I would imagine that, you know, washing your hands, that's fair play, but I, I you know, I would find it hard to believe that a healthy idea would be to go and to lick the pole on the bus or on the subway or something like that. Like that's just next level germ. So really, what is the healthy balance of how much exposure you want versus how much you should be limiting your yeah, exposure? It, it really, it's such a great question. And it really is about the big picture. So if we think about one of the important ways we get microbes, which is through the food that we eat we think about where that food is grown. If it's not grown in microbially rich soil, if it's, if it's organic industrial and it's grown in a factory, um, or if it's highly pesticized, or if it's coming from a long distance away, so all of these things contribute to the microbial richness of the food, the soil it's grown in, the, you know, whether it's been sprayed with glyphosate or things like that. So we have to think about our food chain and look at, you know, are we eating a highly processed, pesticide, sort of industrialized food chain? Exposure to nature is another huge one. There's a great book called Nature Deficit Disorder, Last Child in the Woods. And it's not just looking at screens all that looking at screens all day long can be bad for us. It is the absence of the interaction with the soil microbes out in nature that can do you know have incredible benefits for us. We know that just exposing your hands to potting soil for a few minutes every day, there was a great study done where it showed after two weeks they could see changes in the microbiome. So it, it is really this idea of a super sanitized lifestyle. And really that is one of the quandaries, right? So how do we rewild ourselves while still living in the real world and having you know the modern conveniences that we all enjoy of of indoor plumbing and sanitation, and we don't have to worry about cholera in the water because the water supply is safe, et cetera. So these are all things that improve our lives in significant ways, but the question is how do we use these things more judiciously? So paying attention to not just what you're eating, but where the food is coming from, how it was grown is important. Judicious use of medications, making sure that if you are being prescribed an antibiotic or an acid blocker, two drugs that are very disruptive to the microbiome, that these medications are really indicated and that they're being used judiciously. These are some of the things that we can do and get out in nature, literally hug a tree. <laughs> well, well, we're going to talk about those acid blockers here in, in just a little bit. Uh, the potting soil study, that's an interesting one, right? I don't have a green thumb, and this may be the dumbest question, Dr. Chuckin, that I've ever asked on the show, and God knows I've asked my fair share, but if I literally just go out and I buy a bag of potting soil and I stick my hands in it without attempting to grow anything, which I fail miserably at, if I just stick my hands in the potting soil, am I going to get that same kind of benefit? You are. You are. And Chuck, I have, a, I have a little secret for you too. I have a terrible green thumb too. I always buy lavender and all this stuff at the farmer's market. And first of all, I just let it sit. So I let it sit <laughs> in the planter. My husband's like, you know, you actually have to plant it. But what I do, I'm going to turn my screen around to show you what's outside where I live. So I'm surrounded by this magnificent Rock Creek Park greenery. I literally will just go and lie in the dark for a little bit. And you don't even have to lie. You could, we know that this method, Shinrin-yoku of forest bathing, that um, the Japanese have studied a lot, that just being out walking in the forest, in the woods, in a green area can bring down blood pressure. It can improve 
um, feelings of well-being. It can decrease risk for heart disease. It can improve wound healing, etc. We know that something called the outdoor air factor, the OAF, we've known about this for 100 years. During the Spanish flu epidemic, we saw, well, I wasn't around to see, but studies show that the soldiers, typically the officers who recuperated indoors, had a much higher mortality than the enlisted men who were put in cots outside to recover. There's some great photos there from 1918 of the enlisted men in cots outside uh, do, doing much better. In one study, the mortality was 13% outside, 40% inside. So, you know, we don't even have to, it's great if you can grow something and eat it, right? That's fantastic. But just literally, you know, sitting in the dirt, being out amongst the trees, that has really beneficial effects. Well, you know, prior to the video game era, I would think then that the kids had a big leg up where they're always outside. They're rolling around in the dirt. They're, you know, playing in the mud. They're skinning their knees. They're doing all of these things. They're just outside enjoying nature. Do you think that today's kids, because they're more indoors and maybe even because their diets are a little bit less healthy uh, than they used to be, um, their immunity might be waning compared to what their grandparents had growing up Absolutely. when they were yeah. the kids are sicker. They're also highly medicated. You mm. know, you know, this idea of like drugging kids for things that are probably not necessarily requiring a pharmaceutical agent um, is also something new. You know, when, when I was growing up, I didn't know kids who, you know, had like a little medicine bag and were taking all these different pills. So it definitely, it is, you know, the screen time, the lack of exposure to nature, the pesticides, processed food, the stress that kids are under, all of this is definitely making them sicker. It's making us sicker too, but we're really seeing it in the kids. So I, I you know, I, I don't want to come across as like, don't ever take medication. I, I, I don't want to be anti-med, you know, because there are going to be cases obviously where people desperately need this medication. So we were talking about balance and other things earlier. So how does one weigh whether somebody really needs a medicine versus whether it's a case where they're just being overprescribed like so many others? There's a famous study from the pediatric literature that shows that pediatricians prescribe an antibiotic about 62% of the time, 62 to 63% of the time when they perceive a parent wants an antibiotic versus 7% when they don't chuck. So that is an enormous gray zone between 7% and 63%. And so I counsel my patients that you want to be that parent with one eyebrow raised, right? Both for yourself and your kid who's like, do I really need that antibiotic? And I actually, in this book, go through a series of questions to find out, is this antibiotic really necessary? Because no matter how many probiotics you take, your microbiome is going to take a hit from antibiotics. That's what they're designed to do, to kill bacteria. So if you're taking an antibiotic, you are doing some damage to the microbiome. And yes, there are things you can do to help mitigate that. But the most important thing you can do is to make sure that the antibiotic you're taking is absolutely necessary. So that's the first question I always recommend to just, you know, graciously say, I appreciate that you are prescribing this to me, doc. And I want to know, is this absolutely necessary? What would happen if I didn't take it? You'd be surprised how much of the time the answer is, oh, well, your sinus infection will be two days longer. I'll take that. You know, it's not, it's not, you know, you have a flesh eating bacterial infection and you're going to lose a limb. It's, you're going to have the sniffles for a day or two longer. Or, um, you know, you can ask about alternative therapy. We know that something called D-mannose can be very helpful for certain kind of urinary tract infections, particularly ones caused by E. coli. But again, I want to emphasize that you want to do this under the supervision of your healthcare provider. You don't want to go rogue and say, okay, I have a rip-roaring urinary tract infection. 
I'm just going to go buy some D-mannose. Because there may be things about that infection. You may have a resistant organism. It may be affecting your kidneys. You know, there may be things about that that do require treatment. So I'm, I'm always advocating, you know, have a frank discussion. And I also recommend to a lot of the patients who see me are not fond of pharmaceuticals. And that's why they come because they know that my, um, my medical methodology, if you will, is to try and avoid particularly the more dangerous pharmaceuticals when possible. But I always counsel them. I'm like, look, don't go in saying, I'm not taking a drug no matter what. You know, make your preference known. Say, I would like to treat this without antibiotics if possible, and here's why. I'm at risk for an autoimmune disease, or I have an autoimmune disease, or you know, I took a lot of antibiotics in my youth and I'm concerned about the health of my gut and my microbiome. And so I would love to chat with you about to discuss what are some other options. Could we use a narrow spectrum antibiotic instead of a broad spectrum, which is going to do less damage? You know, could we use it for a shorter period of time? What are some of the, you know, work with me. What, what could we do to help hair? And I think when you engage your healthcare provider that way and you let them know that, you know, you respect their opinion, et cetera, but you have some other concerns that you want them to take into consideration, you end up with a more, a more fruitful conversation and it should always be a dialogue. All right. If there's a question that you have for Dr. Chuck and you want to drop that in the doctor's mailbag, go ahead and post that in the comment or in the chat right now. We're going to open that up in just a little bit. First of all, I want to say hi to Marta, who's joining us in Portland today. Quarantined Quartet. That's alliterative. They're in Brooklyn. Stephen is in Waterloo, Canada. We've got Mommy Vegan Nummy checking us out from Pittsburgh today. And uh, Deaf Creator is watching us from the Ukraine. Our thoughts are with you, Def Creator. Thanks for being here. That's amazing that you're tuning in. Um, we have a couple of people right now in the chat who are talking about uh, back to the kids conversation. And they're like, look, you know, my kids are always coming home with the sniffles, a, a cough, something like that. Um, and in turn, they're feeling a little bit under the weather. Based off of what it was that you said uh, earlier in, in the program, could we surmise though, that even though they're being exposed and maybe they've got the sniffles for a couple of days, in the long run, that may actually be advantageous because it's helping to build up their immunity. You hit the nail on the head with that, Chuck. If we look back at the hygiene hypothesis and what formed the basis for the hygiene hypothesis, which is something we've talked about in medicine since around the 80s. In the 1950s, David Strawn, who was an epidemiologist at the London School of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene, was tasked with figuring out why they were seeing skyrocketing rates of two particular autoimmune diseases in the UK, of hay fever, which is sort of like asthma, and eczema. And he embarked on a 21-year study, who is very patient, of about 17,000 kids from birth to adulthood. And he found two things that form the basis of the hygiene hypothesis. The first is that kids from large families who were coming home with the sniffles, sort of the equivalent of, you know, what you're describing with kids at daycare, at school, they're coming home with the sniffles. So kids who lived in large families who were exposed to lots of cousins and siblings coughing and sneezing on them and had those frequent childhood illnesses, they had lower rates of autoimmune disease as adults. Kids who were in smaller households and particularly kids who Affluence does not correlate with hygiene anymore, but it did apparently in 1950s London. So kids who were more affluent, who had access to more sanitation, who were bathing and washing all the time, those kids had higher rates of autoimmune disease. Now, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't give your kid a bath or encourage them to clean up. But, you know, the, the take home points here are that these early sniffles, coughs and colds, et cetera, they are an essential part of the immune training of your immune system understanding, okay, 
this is a little problem. I need to mount a little response. This is a big problem. This thing I can just ignore. And we know that kids who don't get that early exposure are more likely to have an overreactive immune system when they do encounter some of these, you know, fairly benign pathogens later on. And so I want you to remember that as you're, you know, for everybody out there whose kid is sick and cough and cold, remember this too shall pass. And it is part of the immune training to make them more resilient, less likely to have autoimmune disease, and more likely to have what I like to call that Goldilocks immune system, an immune system that's just right. It's not overreacting, the form of autoimmune disease or allergies. It's not underreacting where it's unable to clear an infection. The Goldilocks, I think that's the title of your next book right there. The Goldilocks Immune System. That's awesome. Uh, quick correction. Marta is in Poland, not Portland. She was quick to let me know. My apologies. Uh, even more impressive that you're here today. Thanks for joining us there. Mandy is uh, in South Africa. Sharon's in Virginia. Thank you all, wherever you are, for tuning in and raising your health IQ with us today. Um, I want to go back to something else that you wrote in your book that really, 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 I mean, just jumped out at me. And you were talking about um, how immunity ex obviously extends beyond just the cold, the flu. We've even talked a little bit about COVID, but you mentioned specifically, and this, this really blew my mind. Some people can be repeatedly exposed to the HIV virus and never become infected. Yeah. Wasn't that incredible? I mean, I the, the whole idea of viral immunity is incredible. And some of those studies are actually from South Africa, looking at sex workers in South Africa who were exposed over and over and over again. And some of this is on a genetic basis, but some is on a microbial basis. So for example, if you look at the female vaginal microbiome, unlike the gut where we want high diversity, high variety, the vaginal microbiome, queen bee is lactobacillus. It's an acid producing bacteria and high levels of lactobacillus are really a sign of a healthy vaginal microbiome. Now, there are other players in the vaginal microbiome, things like Gardnerella and Prevotella, but they're present at lower levels. When that vaginal microbiome gets disrupted, often through antibiotics, we see the lactobacillus levels drop and the Prevotella, Gardnerella, et cetera, increase, yeast species. Now, these are not pathogens per se. They're there, but they're now overrepresented. And what we see is that women who have this sort of dysbiosis in the vagina, we call it bacterial vaginosis is a condition that I'm talking about. They have higher rates of sexually transmitted diseases. So they can get exposed to HPV, human papillomavirus, herpes simplex, HIV, and end up with a disease, whereas women who have high levels of lactobacillus may be exposed and not end up with a disease. Now, I don't want people to think that that should be the way that they are protecting themselves from sexually transmitted diseases. Like great if you have a vagina that's full of, of lactobacillus, wonderful, but you still need to take precautions, right? Against sexually transmitted diseases. But um, we know from those studies very clearly that the composition of the vaginal microbiome and Chuck, it's not just the STDs, it's also bacterial vaginosis is a risk factor for preterm labor, for miscarriages, for infertility, for all kinds of things. And when you think about it, again, what's going on physically is that the lactobacillus are making acid, which is repelling these viruses that are trying to get in. So when we think about stuff like, you know, miscarriages and early fetal losses, the bacteria, the lactobacillus are also protecting the baby. They're literally like zapping these things that are trying to get in with acid. It's, it's really incredible. All right. So when we're talking about creating this, uh, you know, ultra immune system inside as powerful as it possibly can be build out wise, like in terms of percentage, how much of this goes to diet? 
how much of it goes to environment, how much of it goes to sleep, exercise, stress, all of that. Can you break that down in terms of what we should really be focusing on more so than others, or at least where we should start? It's all important, Chuck, and it'd be hard to give numbers, but I will tell you that early on in the first thousand days when the microbiome is developing, so the first, say, three, four years of life, the microbiome is really tender then. That's not a great time to medicate your baby unless absolutely necessary. It's a great time to breastfeed your baby. It's a great time to let your baby be out in nature a little bit exploring. I mean, you don't want them eating dog poo, but you know, you want when babies are putting stuff in their mouth, it's because they are trying to actually bring microbes, bring some of that environmental exposure into their body. So we see, we see young animals from all species doing that. And in fact, some young animals actually do eat the stool of the older species in an attempt to rewild their gut. I don't recommend that for human babies. But um, so we really want to be very, very judicious about antibiotics and other medications, acid blockers, et cetera, in those early years, and even prepartum during pregnancy, et cetera, and even before conception, as we're thinking about preparing our body, our uterus, our microbiome for conception, we want to create the healthiest soil possible to, to grow that baby in. Um, in terms of once you hit about 18, the microbiome sort of stabilizes out. It's stable for a few decades. It starts to change again as we get into older years. And it tends to be more resilient during that time. But this is where diet can really play a really large role, not just high fiber foods, but also think about getting some ferments in, some sauerkraut, some kimchi. Fermented foods are this powerhouse combination of prebiotics. So if you think about sauerkraut, it's the cabbage, the fibrous cabbage to feed the bacteria. So it's a prebiotic. Probiotic, because in the fermentation process, you're creating lactobacillus. And then postbiotics, because all the important bacterial metabolites are being created as it ferments that fiber. So you're getting all of that. It truly is a, a living medicinal food. So this is where, and again, it doesn't have to be, you know, buckets of sauerkraut every day, but this is where a tablespoon of sauerkraut which is about 10 grams on a daily basis or every other day can really make a difference. The other things you talked about, stress is a huge one, particularly chronic stress. And we know that stress, for example, can increase levels of certain pathogenic bacteria a thousand fold within an hour. Sleep deprivation, another huge one. There was a study from last year that showed that chronic sleep deprivation, people getting less than six hours of sleep a night, 76% increased rate of COVID in people who are sleep deprived. We know vaccines are less effective. We know that being sleep deprived in the two days before you get your vaccine can make that vaccine 50% less effective. And that's true for hepatitis, for influenza and for the COVID vaccine. So all of these things, when you think about college students, how they get sick, they get mono, so they get reactivation of latent viruses like Epstein-Barr virus, they get strep, they get all these infections around exam time. They're sleep deprived, they're stressed out and they're not eating well typically. And that is a really potent combination for getting sick, really for anyone. Um, and so, you know, again, you, you have to also look at what is a genetic predisposition. So are you somebody with an autoimmune disease, with a strong history of cancer, family history, heart disease, etc. Right? And so that personal foundation that is genetically influenced makes a difference also, although it seems, Chuck, that when it comes to the microbiome, there's not a strong genetic influence. There is some, for example, there's a bacteria called Christensenalacea. I love this now. I mean, these, I love these. Fecalobacterium prosnitziae, Enterococcus fecalis. I mean, I could just say this. <laughs> Christensenalacea, 
is a bacteria that is associated with leanness and it does seem to be genetically inherited. And so you can probably think of those families. I mean, I think of the Esselsteins and yes, they eat this amazing plant-based diet, but they also, you know, they're all that bean pole. All of them are like thin and lean and um, they probably have high levels of Christian senilesia, but uh, again, the, the main reason why I think they're so lean and healthy is because of the fantastic diet that they eat. But this is an example of some bacterial influences that can be inherited. But the vast majority, I think 80 to 90% of the composition of the microbiome is built rather than born, right? You inherit your founding species from your mother if you have the good fortune of passing through that birth canal, but then it is really your environment, your diet, you know, um, medications you've taken, stress in your life, sleep, exposure to nature, all of these different things. Another one that is really not talked about much, Chuck, but it's a big one, is a laterality of the microbiome in the sense that we are also exchanging microbes with the people who live with us. In fact, I read a study two days ago that said that 25% of, um, we share about 25% of the viruses with the people we live with and we have close contact with. And um, you think about vertical transmission from the mother and what you're getting from the environment and food. But I think about older people who are living in isolated conditions, maybe living in a room, in, a, in an assisted living home or something, not having a lot of exposure, not eating great food, not getting out in nature, and the, the loneliness, the isolation, and what that can mean for the microbiome. Because one of the things we know with aging is that to have decreased frailty, to be more robust as we age, we need diversity in the microbiome. And how do we get that diversity? From eating a diverse array of plant foods and from interacting with nature and with other people from whom we are also getting microbes. So I do think, I, I feel very sad when I think about it. And I think we need to think about how to socialize our older people differently and better. You know, maybe we should have trips to the farm like we do for kids in preschool, right? For, for some of the elder people who are, who are, you know, mobile and have them out at the farm and, you know, picking peas and, and doing different things and working on the farm rather than just sitting in, you know, be warehousing them in front of the television. Yeah. Well, we got a great question just now from Alicia. You're talking about exposure with people who you live with. Well, what about your pets? How does that affect your microbiome and your immunity? Great question, Alicia. So what we know is that children who have pets, in particular dogs, are, end up on fewer antibiotics, have fewer serious infectious episodes. So dogs are fantastic for bringing the environment in. They bring in a lot of dirt and different things. And it's great for children. And it's really good for adults, too. So yes, cats a little less so, but dogs are great. And um, horses, very good, too. Hard to have a horse in your home, but people who who have exposure to horses, work with horses, um, et cetera. Very, very good for the microbiome. Well, I'm just saying that old black and white show, Mr. Ed, that, that horse was forever <laughs> in the house or at least hanging its head over the door into the kitchen. I don't know. It could, it could work. Uh, Jesse at 1233, how does immunity differ between people who eat a keto diet versus a junk food vegan diet versus a whole food plant-based diet? So what do we know there? Yeah, so I would have to say that the junk food is really problematic, the junk food diet, not just because of, it's a great question, Jesse, not just because of 
the lack of nutrients. But what we know is a lot of these ultra processed foods have things in them, fillers, emulsifiers, etc., that are actually harmful to the gut lining and harmful to the gut bacteria. So they are actively destroying gut health. It's not just, okay, you're not getting great fiber and nutrients. You're, there are chemical substances in there that are problematic. In terms of um, the different diets, you know, it's like religion. And, you know, the ideal diet is really one that works for you. What I will tell you is that what in the studies we have done in our patients with complex autoimmune diseases, with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, and this is data we published in 2014, we looked at people on a the specific carbohydrate diet, which is a, you know, it's sort of a third cousin of a paleo diet. It takes out the dairy and the gluten and the refined sugars, et cetera. But people who interpreted that as bacon and eggs for breakfast, chicken for lunch, steak for dinner with two broccoli florets, they didn't have the same results in terms of being able to get off medication, mucosal healing of the inflammation in their gut. So we found a direct correlation with the amount of plants being consumed. The higher the amount of plant fiber in the diet, the better those patients did. We have data from the American Gut Project in 2018 that showed that diversity of plants is the most important predictor of the health of the microbiome. And the magic number in that study was 30, right? So 30 different plant foods. So that's fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, grains, spices, herbs, all of it. You get credit for all of it. It's a fun little um, project to see how many you can get in a day. Make your oatmeal, add berries, shave coconut, walnuts, pumpkin seeds, raisins, you know, whatever you can, a little, even a little maple syrup, you get credit for that too. Make a salad and start adding things to it, throw in the pumpkin seeds, all of those things. So what we see again is that diversity is super important. It's great to be a good vegetable eater, but if you're eating peas, carrots, and broccoli in heavy rotation every day, and that's all you're eating, you're not going to have the same uh, diversity and richness in the microbiome. So you know, that question, I have patients in my practice who are on a low carb, more paleo. I mean, I don't recommend keto just because you're really starving those gut microbes. But I have patients in my practice who don't tolerate, for example, legumes or a lot of grains for their colitis or their Crohn's. And they do well, I will often have them blending up greens and drinking that in the form of a green smoothie, trying to get more plant fiber in. But for some of these autoimmune conditions, there are different levels of tolerability. What I will say for the average healthy person, um, I don't recommend a keto diet because it's too low on those max, those microbiota accessible carbohydrates, the MACs, that we know are really important for increasing the population of healthy bacteria like the Fecalobacterium prosnitzii that I'm so enamored with. I mean, I bet you just have a whole lot of fun trying to come up with a vanity license plate every what five years or whatever, when you have to like, you know, renew that. How can I fit this long Latin term, condense that down into eight letters? And will anybody ever get it? I don't know. I'll tell you in, in medical school at Columbia, we had this parasitology professor named Dixon de Pommier, who was brilliant and, you know, just a great entertainer in addition to a great teacher. And I remember that like hookworm, we have old world and new world. So we have Nicator americanus, which is new world hookworm and Ancelostoma duodenale, which is old world hookworm. And when my daughter was born about 17 and a half years ago, I was like, Ancelostoma, that would be such a great name. My husband was like, we are not naming our daughter hookworm. 
No. Uh, Pancelostoma is not on the list. <laughs> but I just, you know, it just like, Pancelostoma duodenale. You know, doesn't it just have like this inc incredible ring to it? I mean, it does, but you know she's going to get asked, what no. does your name mean? And then oh. when she has to say hookworm, I mean, imagine the poor person who she's talking to, right? We went with Sydney. Sydney was <laughs> I think it's a wise decision. And if you want to call her that as a nickname, go right for it. But Sydney, Sydney's just as good. Uh, all right. Uh, we were talking about not being too specific with your diet, making sure that you get that wide diversity, though. Memento at 1222 was wondering whether broccoli sprouts should be part of that wide, diverse diet. Do they offer any sort of extra protection? Yeah, broccoli sprouts um, are, in, in terms of the polyphenol, um, uh, capacity are fantastic. A lot of those sprouts are great, but broccoli sprouts in particular are wonderful. And uh, let's talk about, uh, let's see, what else do we have? We got a lot of questions coming in, right? Oh, you know what? Let's take this one from Franzi at 1230. I love this question in particular always because the answer usually puts the big old smile on everybody's face. Franzi at 1230, I have acid reflux and often suffer from chest pain. Is it too late to treat my condition with natural remedies? And what natural remedies might I be able to use? Franzi, it's a great question. So the first thing I want you to really think about is why are you having acid reflux? What is triggering it? Are you eating too large a meal? Are you eating too late at night? Is there too much caffeine, alcohol, chocolate? These are all things that can trigger it. The stomach has a bedtime. The stomach contractility decreases dramatically once the sun sets. So if you're eating your large meal fairly late at night, meaning anytime after the sun sets, that's likely to cause acid reflux. So I really want you to do some forensics on why you're having acid reflux. Because if you can figure out what that is, dairy is another big trigger for a lot of people. So again, are you eating too late? Is a meal too large? Is it what you're eating? Caffeine, alcohol, chocolate? There are things you can do mechanically, like putting up the head of the bed to give you a little gravity advantage at night. So um, in terms of natural remedies, it would really be those diet and lifestyle things that I would recommend first that tend to be the most helpful for the acid reflux. There's not, you know, typically there's not like an alternative pill to an acid blocker that is going to take care of it. It's really recognizing what it is about diet or lifestyle that is causing that sphincter to open and causing the acid reflux. And sometimes it's something mechanical, like you could have low sphincter pressure in your lower esophageal sphincter that's possible or a hiatal hernia, which is something anatomical. But for most people, it is some of the things I talked about that's opening up that sphincter. But by and large, you know, the, the thing that I really like to talk to people about is when they ask, is it too late? Maybe they've had this condition for years and years and years. Maybe they're in their 70s. Maybe they're in their 80s. Maybe they've even passed 90. And they think that eh, my time has just gone by. I, I can't get any healthier at this point. By and large, generally speaking, what would your response be to somebody who thinks it is too late to make a change? I, I would point them to check out. Um, I spoke about this at ICM. Check out Mike Fremont's story. Mike Fremont is, I think he's 101 now. He was diagnosed with metastatic colon cancer at 69. And that's when he really changed and became plant-based. And he was already a good exercisers, runner and canoeer, et cetera. And here he is at 101, um, you know, 31 years, 32 years after metastatic colon cancer. So the ability of our body to change is incredible. I mean, when I see some of my patients with complex autoimmune diseases with ulcers and bleeding and really inflamed guts, 
and I do a colonoscopy on them six months or a year later, and I see that stuff has melted away and it looks normal. It is, you know, it is miraculous. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody has a potential. I mean, even in our practice, we have about a 79% success rate getting people into remission with diet and lifestyle, but it's not 100%, right? So there's probably one out of every five patients where we're not able to do that. But you don't have anything to lose except getting healthier. You know, what, what's the most terrible thing that could happen from eating more plants and sleeping and reducing stress and doing getting out into the woods? Like the only thing that will happen is you're going to get healthier overall and maybe your acid reflux, your Crohn's, whatever it is, will improve. So, you know, we, we haven't done a great job as physicians for incorporating some of these changes, for really talking about the incredible benefits of diet and lifestyle change. And that's why, you know, I'm so grateful to the work that you do at PCRM, the work you do on this podcast, the ICNM conference, all of it, because it really is about empowering people and saying, you know, you, you are in charge to a, a large degree. You're not, you can't control everything, but there is so much you can do to be healthier. And literally like, eating an extra vegetable a day, grabbing a carrot when you're going out, you know, walking outside for 10 minutes. I mean, these are things that are powerful that can, and it can start to add up. And I think what happens, and I know Chuck, you can really speak to this is you start to incorporate one healthier habit and it builds, you know, you're like, Oh, I did that. And it was great. Like, let me do this. Let me add to it. Let me build on it. You know, whether it's starting an exercise regimen, whether it's, um, experimenting with a more plant-based diet, whether it is looking at techniques for stress reduction. In, in the book, I really went down a rabbit hole with sleep. And I, I think there are 28 different steps I give for how you can improve your sleep because I realized that this was something that people really weren't paying attention to. And it was one of the most profound influences. Sleep and exercise are two of the most potent non-pharmacological interventions for your immune system. Far more powerful than typically a supplement or anything that you can take. And people weren't aware of it. So I talk about the importance of sleep in the book, but in the plan at the end, I really break it down into, you know, environment and supplements and food and all, you know, eat some food with tryptophan. It's a precursor for melatonin. You know, what can people do to really make sure they're getting healthy sleep? We're running long here. So uh, I I, I mean, I can't let you go also, though, without talking about these new studies that come out and they look at PPIs. You're just talking about eating that heavy meal and that leading to the increased cases of reflux at night. I mean, this was uh, pretty alarming, these two studies. The one comes out and uh, it's talking about increased risks of uh, cancer among adults. The other one is looking at allergies and asthma uh, in children. So you've got those two studies that come out. Number one, for those who aren't familiar, what are PPIs? What are the over-the-counter brands that we're really familiar with? And two, what did these studies show? PPIs are proton pump inhibitors, and there are several over-the-counter ones now, Prilosec, which is omeprazole, but the, you may know some of the brand names as Prevacid, Protonics, Prilosec, Nexium. There's, I think, seven or eight of them on the market. These drugs are very, very good at what they do, which is to completely shut down the acid pump in the stomach. And so if you have acid reflux, that can help with symptoms and it can sort of take the brakes off so that you can eat a big meal late at night and not have a lot of symptoms. But remember that those symptoms you're having when you eat a big meal late at night are important feedback that your body's giving you, right? To, to 
keep you alive and healthy to say like, you can't eat this big meal late at night. It's, you know, causing a problem in the stomach. So when you remove that feedback, that can lead to problems. But the biggest problem is that stomach acid is an integral part of digestion. It provides a low pH for the digestive enzymes to work optimally for peristalsis to function. It creates a gradient from north to south of more acidic to less acidic throughout the gut that also influences a microbial content. And it's a really important host defense. That stomach acid denatures viral protein when it gets in, when we swallow it, and kills viruses. So when we remove the stomach acid, you know, we're actually creating a medical state, something called achlorhydria which is the absence of stomach acid. Achlorhydria is a medical condition that is associated with iron deficiency anemia and cancer because what happens is a cell sense that there's no acid and they start to secrete the substance gastrin to try and increase the secretion of hydrochloric acid. They're flogging these cells and over time you get hyperplasia and abnormal reproduction of these ECL cells that are secreting the hydrochloric acid, and that can lead to gastric cancer. So we have known about gastric cancer as a side effect of this medical condition, achlorhydria, which is pretty rare, but now we're seeing it in pharmaceutically induced achlorhydria. So it's important for anybody out there taking one of these drugs to remember that when they take that drug, they are creating a medical condition in their stomach that has some pretty profound consequences for digestion, for um, protection against viruses. We know that people taking PPIs once a day are twice as likely to get COVID and people taking PPI twice a day, three to four fold as likely. So if you are on one of these drugs, don't panic, but I do want you to have a conversation with the prescriber or if you're taking it over the counter with whoever recommended it and talk about alternatives. Could you take an H2 blocker, a histamine blocker as needed, the PPIs you have to take every day. So could you take a histamine blocker as needed once or twice a week? Could you take an antacid when you have, you know, overdone it a little bit? In the words of my wonderful mother-in-law, which she would say, don't oversport yourself. So if you have oversported <laughs> yourself and you are having some heartburn, could you take an antacid and then endeavor to not do that, whatever it was you did that caused a heartburn as frequently? rather than just medicate, because when you medicate, you put a Band-Aid on it, and it typically allows that behavior to continue. As I like to say, you know, imagine if we didn't get muscle aches if we overdid it, or we didn't get hangovers if we drank too much. I mean, people would, we would have some serious problems. I mean, people could die from alcohol poisoning if they would just drink and continue drinking and feel fine. Or if you could go from being a couch potato to running a marathon, and, you know, you'd be pulling muscles and spraining joints, etc. So, these feedback loops are there for the most part to protect us and to keep us safe. Oh man, I feel like we could just go for hours and hours and hours. We're already in overtime. Uh, so do you feel like coming back? Yes, absolutely. Would love to. You know, we have, we have some great GI studies. So let's do this, Chuck. When something really, you know, hot hits that I think people need to know about, I will shoot you an email and you see when you can squeeze me on and maybe we can do it for less time. But you know, again, the work that you do, it's like you provide a megaphone for us to amplify this really critical information, because unfortunately, a lot of my GI colleagues, when they prescribe these drugs, are just like, oh, yeah, take this, take it yeah, for the rest of your life. It's fine. And, you know, we, we are in a moment where we have very well-informed consumers, very thoughtful, very sophisticated consumers. And, you know, shows like yours are providing them with information to, as you said, you know, increase their 
their wellness levels. So thank you for that. Game on. Yeah. Uh, 11 million strong uh, on Spotify and Apple podcasts, close wow. to hundred million on YouTube. I mean, so the, we're, we're really, we're really cooking here in the healthiest way possible. Uh, so Dr. Robin Chuck and appreciate you being here. Can't wait to have you back. Definitely going to take you up on that offer. But in the meantime, the new book, the antiviral gut hit store shelves November 1st. So that's next Tuesday. You can pre-order your copy right now with the link that is in the episode notes. Highly, highly, highly recommend it. This is a fantastic read. Of of course, you're also on Instagram at Gut Bliss and Twitter at Dr. Chutkin. And uh, this has just been a real treat. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. The Barnard Medical Center is powering this episode of the Exam Room Podcast. Their doctors and dietitians practice lifestyle medicine and promote plant-based nutrition with in-person visits in their Washington, D.C. office and telemedicine appointments in 18 states. Visit barnardmedical.org or call 202-527-7500 to learn more. That's barnardmedical.org or call 202-527-7500. If you would like to join us for the exam room live Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific is the time to do that. Coming up on the show next week, Dr. Neil Barnard will be back with us. And then the following Wednesday, our good buddy, Dr. Will Bolsowitz will be back. Going to be really furthering our discussion about gut health and the microbiome, no doubt. So Wednesdays, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, YouTube and Facebook. Mark your calendars, set a reminder or... Get the replay right here on the podcast every Thursday, first thing. Coming up on Sunday, October 30th, is the Loudoun County Veg Fest, just about 90 minutes outside of Washington, D.C. I'm going to be there hanging out and going to be speaking at 1 o'clock, talking about food addiction. What foods are addictive? Which ones can you turn to to break that addiction and then keep that weight off for the rest of your life? What separates the contenders from the pretenders when it comes to long-term weight loss? We're going to be talking all about that as I share my story and a whole lot of science. Plus, I'm going to be hanging out at the Physicians Committee's table right after. So if you want to come by, say hi, and enjoy some of the amazing food that's going to be out there, please absolutely do that. We've got a link with details and information in the episode notes. Mike Young and his wife from a plantbaseddiet.org, they will also be speaking that day about longevity. There's also going to be a presentation about fruits of the season. That one I'm really interested in because Loudoun County is apple country. And even though it's a little bit late in the year, I'm hoping that there's going to be some late pickings out there that are just going to be so, so, so juicy and delicious when you get the chance to bite into that apple. So I'm really looking forward to that. Join me at the Loudon Veg Fest Sunday, October 30th. I'll be on stage at one o'clock and hanging out for a good chunk of the afternoon. So come on out, say hi and indulge in some of those delicious yum yums that are going to be out there. What do you say now we take our health IQs a little bit higher? We've learned a lot today already, but I think there's room for a little more knowledge. Some time outside soaking up the sun might just help you live longer. And that is courtesy of the sun's rays that help the body produce vitamin D. A new study finds people with vitamin D deficiency are actually more likely to die prematurely. 
Researchers in Australia examined more than 300,000 patient records, finding the people with the recommended amounts of vitamin D in their blood were 25% less likely to die prematurely compared to those with only half the recommended amount in their system. The findings also show people with adequate amounts of D were less likely to die from cancer, as well as cardiovascular and respiratory diseases. Now, this data was taken from the UK Biobank and analyzed by researchers at the University of South Australia. And down under, about one in three people are deficient in vitamin D. Here in the US though, some studies have shown rates to be higher than that, almost as high as 40%. So how much sun do you actually need to make sure that you're getting enough vitamin D? Well, it turns out it's about 15 minutes of sunlight every day on your skin that can do the trick in most cases. But as we've said on the show before, during my discussions with Dr. Neil Barnard, if you're living somewhere that's cold, you're living in a northern environment where sun time is really kind of limited, well, a supplement can help there, or you can turn to foods that have been fortified with vitamin D, and a lot of plant-based milks can do just that. There's a link to the study, by the way, right now for you in the episode notes. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you once again to Dr. Robin Chutkin for being here and helping to raise our health IQs and turn ours into an antiviral gut. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based.